Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a LitFest highlight. Anyone participating in LitFest is invited to sign up for a three to five minute reading slot. Readers are energized by adrenaline and buzz long after they've read their words to the always warm and eager-to-be-entertained audience. The third LitFest participant reading took place on June 20, 2013, and featured 12 readers from a mix of genres. Welcome. You're at the uh, Lighthouse LitFest 2013 participant reading numero trace. I think that's how you say participant reading in Spanish, right? Participant reading? <laughs> Participante reading. Um, uh, my, name is, my name is J. Diego Fry. I'm going to be your MC tonight. Um, and uh, I, I want to start out by just letting you know that if this is the only night that you picked to attend a Lighthouse Lit Fest event, uh, you made the right choice. If you if you if you uh, picked other events to attend, also you also made the right choice. But if, <laughs> I, I don't want to get you. But this is uh, this this uh, the third of three participant readings. These participant readings really are the um, kind of the pinnacle of this of this experience of LitFest. Uh, we we bring some amazing writers here to to teach you, and they do readings, and they're extraordinary. But it's the people who are uh, taking the classes and um, and who are exercising their God-given talents. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring up God in my introduction. Um, <laughs> but he's there now, so we'll just let him sit. Um, who are exercising their talents, uh, you know, and, 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 and creating brave and beautiful and wonderful uh, writing for us all to, to enjoy and appreciate. And to me, that is the essence of, of, of what this whole community is about is, you know, is bringing that out of all of us. Um, and the reflexive side of that, the, the other piece, the reason why these participant readings are so wonderful is because for those of you reading tonight, um, savor this because you are, this is the nicest crowd and the most appreciative and, you know, in, in quite likely the most intelligent crowd. <laughs> that you're going to find yourself performing in front in front of uh, you know throughout your writing career. So that's a big plus and that's this this is the other piece that Lighthouse brings to to the table for for us. So uh for these two things we are grateful and um for the readers tonight we are grateful. We have six uh we have six we're going to take do six, take a break, six more. Uh we have um fiction writers, non-fiction writers and I think just two poets. Um I'm a poet, so I'm always counting the poets. Um, so we're going to have a poet in each half. Um, and we're going to kick it off tonight with a friend of mine, Christy Espinera. Es- es- Am I saying es- Espinera? Thank you. Sorry, I have a cold, so my Spanish uh, or Spanish-ish accent is, um, is a little off. Um, Christy Espinera... Um, is a refugee from academia. She's a long-time Lighthouse member. She is a book evangelist. 
She's an entrepreneur's wife. I think that was a book, wasn't it? Um, and a mom of teens. Um, I think that was a book, too. Her short story, Still Life, was born in a LitFest workshop last year and nurtured in classes with Erica Krauss and Robin Black, two, two wonderful teachers. Um, please give a warm welcome to our first reader of the evening, Christy Espinera. So JD told me that since I was first, I had to like bring the energy up and hit it out of the park. But I decided I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to like set the bar really low. And then everyone else who's reading can just chill and feel good about themselves. So I think that might be better. Do you think? Okay. So, um, and also I didn't have a printer today, um, so I'm using the iPad. I never know quite how to greet failed suicides when they first appear on my floor in the hospital. Are congratulations in order or condolences? Hey, nice to meet you. Sorry that whole suicide thing didn't work out. Jesus, what the hell do you say? Mostly I keep quiet, smile in what I hope is a sympathetic way, and go about my business. Mop the floor, bring a meal, maybe empty a bedpan, even though technically that's not in my job description. There's the job description, and then there's Charlie can use. Charlie, can you run this over to the lab? Charlie, can you hand me that chart? Either way, I help out. We don't get a lot of suicides. Failed ones, I mean. That's a hell of a thing, failing at your own suicide. How much of a loser would you feel like then? Or maybe, I don't know, you might feel elated like you've got a second chance at life. This lady, she's in her 50s. All I know is she and her twin sister went to the shooting range, turned the guns on themselves, and the other one died. This lady, Sandra Jenkins, all she got was an exit wound. That's what I heard the nurses say, huddled around the station. So she's only going to be here a few days. Her jaw is bandaged up, and they say it was a clean wound, in and out, so some stitches and she's pretty much set to go. They're only holding her to keep an eye on her mental state, from what I understand. No visitors yet. When I go into a room, I just smile and say, hey, hello, she says, but it's kind of muffled by the gauze on her jaw. I go into the bathroom, replace the toilet paper roll, wipe down the sink and toilet and shower with the new antibacterial cleanser that stinks to high heaven, like a combination of roses and dead skunk. One of the hospital muckety-mucks is on a rampage about flesh-eating bacteria. I'm a fan of good old-fashioned bleach, and I think if the docs would just wash their hands with soap and water, we'd all be fine, but what do I know? I shut the bathroom door behind me so that I can get into that corner behind the hinges. Most of the cleaners don't do that, but you wouldn't believe the crud that accumulates there. It's where the hairs and tiny dust balls hide. When I come out of the bathroom, she's staring right at me, her eyes bright and canny. She says something I don't catch. I'm sorry, I say. Could you help me? She pauses and licks her lips. I just stand there looking. Could you change the channel, she says, holding up the TV remote in her lap. Sure. I step forward, take the remote from her hand. What channel, I ask? She shrugs. Just flip through. I glance down at her, noticing that the roots of her dark brown hair are growing in silver. The nurses call her Miss Jenkins, although she seems too old to be a miss, so she must not be married. I flip through the channels, Soaps, Judge, Judy, Fox News, until I get to reruns of Friends. 
That's good, she says, and pats my arm. I drop the remote on the bed. As I leave, she says something that sounds like thank you, but I'm not sure, because I'm thinking, you tried to commit suicide and your twin sister died, and you want to watch Friends? Thanks. Thank you, Christine. I, I think I think opening with any reading that mentions flesh-eating black bacteria, I think I think that's called setting the tone. Our our, our next reader tonight is a is a new friend of mine, somebody I just met last week at, Light, at Lighthouse Lit Fest. I like saying that Lighthouse Lit Fest. Um, <clears throat> Lori Ella Miller. Uh, Lori is from Detroit, Michigan. She writes short fiction and screenplays, and um, she's a first-timer here at Lighthouse Writers' Workshop, uh, and she completed the uh, advanced novel writing workshop, um, working on her middle-grade fantasy novel titled There Goes the Neighborhood, which follows the adventures of 11-year-old Everly Quinn and her new best friend Fizz, a magical being and refugee from the land of fairy tales and make-believe. Here to read for us tonight, please give a warm welcome to Lori Ella Miller. Uh-oh. Houston, we have a problem there. Is that better? <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks, you guys. I, um, this is my first novel, so I'm happy to be able to share a scene with you guys. I hope you enjoy it. Wanting to leave the day behind and get home to the comfort of my room and some chocolate ice cream, I decided to take a shortcut through the park. I stepped onto the walking path that wound down towards my cul-de-sac, and for the second time that day, I came face-to-face with Mateo. He and his crew were on scooters. I hurried my pace trying to get to safety, but, they, but the faster my stride, the more I limped. Hey, limpy gimpy, Mateo yelled. They revved their scooters and surrounded me, riding around and around, chanting, limpy gimpy, limpy gimpy. I was paralyzed. Mateo leaned from his moving scooter, scooped up a rock. I yelled, closed my eyes tight, and braced for impact. Seconds passed and nothing happened. I opened an eye and saw the stone hovering in midair, just inches from my nose. Shocked, my other eye popped open in time to see the rock slingshot back at Mateo. He and his scooter toppled into the shrubs. Who did that, Mateo yelled as he stood up. Her, one of his cohorts pointed. I turned and saw a young girl wearing a gray hoodie, matching pants, and red patent leather shoes. Mateo picked up his scooter. You're going to be sorry, Mateo's eyes narrowed. You too, you magi-freak. He rolled his wounded scooter away, his bullies in tow. I just stood there silent, entranced. She walked towards me. Instinctively, I took a few steps back. Her delicate hands pulled back the hood to reveal striking features. Brilliant violet eyes, jet black hair, a turned up button nose, and small thin lips. Her skin was an odd shade of pale yellow. Are you all right, Miss Gimpy? Don't call me that, I yelled at her. Is that not your surname? No, it's not. Is Magi Freak your name? She looked puzzled. 
Magi-freak. You know, magical and freak. It's mean. It's an insult, just like Gimpy. Oh, I see. Please forgive me. It's okay. I guess you didn't know. Thanks for the help. My name is Everly, but my friends call me Ever. Day Esperanza, the serene of the Verdant Valley, she bowed. She's going to need a nickname, I thought. <laughs> so, does Spars running in the valley, um, what's up with the way you talk? Why so formal? Well, Father insisted that I be extra polite and not cause any trouble. Too late for that. I guess you're right. We both laughed. So your dad, is he some kind of warlock? No, Father is a great sorcerer, the leader of our clan, she said, and Mama is, well, was a fairy godmother. So you're bi-magical, half fairy and half wizard? <laughs> you're a fizzard. <laughs> her face tightened in a, a severe frown, her dark eyebrows meeting each other. Sorry, I, I'm not making fun of you. In fact, I just made it up. Think of it as a term of endearment. Hey, what if we shorten it and call you Fizz? I mean, your name is a mouthful. Fizz, hmm, I like it, okay. Well, I guess we better get out of here just in case they decide to come back. She nodded, then bent down to pick up something. Suddenly, a leather backpack seemed to appear out of thin air. Hey, where did that come from? It wasn't there a minute ago, I asked. Of course it was, she smiled slyly as she began walking down the street. I just ran to catch up with her. So, what's in the bag? My cameras. Wow, you're into photography? Cool. Yes, I've fallen in love with it, she said. Father told me to find one thing to love about this world. He said if I found one thing to love, it would make it easier to find another and another. And soon this place wouldn't seem so strange to me. And maybe I wouldn't miss home so much. Until that moment, I never thought about how the magicals felt about living here. Everyone saw them as strange and foreign. But how did they see us in our world? I felt a little sorry for her. Maybe she was lonely too, like me, an outsider just trying to fit in. Did it work? Did you find other things that you like about our world, I asked. She looked at me and grinned. Yes, I think I have. Well, wait till you try chocolate. You'll definitely love that. When we arrived at her house, she turned to me with hopeful eyes. Would you like to come in? Sure, I said, following Fizz up the brick-paved walkway, her shoes making a little click-click sound on the cement. And then I stopped dead in my tracks, remembering what Trinity had said this morning about the magicals, that they captured kids and boiled them in a stew. Was Trin right? I mean, in all the fairy tales, didn't the children always end up being eaten by a wolf or pushed into a wood-burning stove? Suddenly panic took over me, and I considered making a run for it. Ever, Fizz said, and I realized she was talking to me, but I hadn't been paying attention. What did you say, I asked? Come on, I can't wait for my parents to meet you. Did she say meet you or eat you? <laughs> I followed closely and cautiously behind her as she bounced up the stairs onto the porch, pushing open a big red door which creaked forebodingly. I took a deep breath and slowly stepped inside, unsure of what might be waiting on the other side. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was great. Um, 
Our next reader is a poet, and she and I had a bizarre experience during National Poetry Month um, when we both ended up uh, reading poetry on a... What's the name of that TV show? It's like it's like Fox and Friends, but it's on Channel Nine, and it's a oh, it's um, there's a show on in the mornings on Channel Nine where you can pay to advertise your product, and it looks like they're interviewing you. And we were <laughs> we were advertising National Poetry Month, I guess. Um, so we got to read poems on TV. Um, it, was a, it was a bizarre experience, but uh, this is a terrific poet, and you're going to be glad that you came to hear her. Um, Marilyn Raff was a garden writer and teacher for 25 years, and she's written three garden books. Um, the poems that she's going to read for us are from her second chapbook out in August, published by Finishing Line Press and called um, Until Class Ends. The, uh, these poems are uh, focused on her teaching experience and her travels uh, to and from the Community College of Denver at Auraria Campus. Um, please give a warm welcome to Denver poet Marilyn Raff. Thank you, Jay. I'm going to start with just one short garden poem from my first chapbook called Ligularia. Noble flower, like the Eiffel Tower, Ligularia stretches skyward, leaves flop and curl when sun attacks. A shade lover, Ligularia gulps moisture, blooms come alive, yellow flowers thrive. In summer sizzling heat, people wilt and crinkle like a ligularia. (laughs) Until class ends, will they focus on the textbook, use their minds, learn new words like nerds? Will they search, think, settle down? not clown around, not text friends until class ends? Will they study vocabulary, nouns, faithfully zoom in? Will they read stories aloud to nourish and arouse? Will they be less concerned about socks that match, name brand hats, sagging pants? Thank you. Daily Ride. She calls it the party bus. The brown-suited driver who awaits her departure shares happenings with four passengers. She smacks sunflower seeds, spits hulls through the open door, chuckles about a rider a while back who cawed like a French trumpet, hands cupped around her mouth, face skyward. Outside the door, before the bus roars, a young man sings, dances around, up and down, to music piped in his ears. I shake my head, pleased to reach normalcy as I depart the party bus, enter my house where, on a daily basis, my husband talks to God. Thank you. (laughs) After a prison gig, Dan, the poor drug man, stutters, wants to stay clean, learn to spell, study, stay alive. At the halfway house, he reviews with a kind buddy vocabulary words like taunted, eligible, overwhelmed, deplorable. He comes to class every day until his brother, on parole, not just another fella, 
needs to raise $7,000 for a lawyer. Just this once he can do drugs, but man, not again. He mixes meth, sells it for coke, makes seven grand fast. Soon he's back with gangs, late to the house one night, forgets school matters, must wash bathrooms with a toothbrush. Okay, the making of a welder. In reading class, the student's deep voice shakes walls. Words like distraction, obnoxious, boom. Her stiff ponytail points outward, rises in reaction. I react too. My eyes swell with dread when suddenly she blurts out her ugly story. My twin brother was asleep. His girlfriend came home, took a fork, stabbed him over and over in his tender throat. The stabber screamed, called 911, clutched her own neck. His eyeballs rolled back. He lived. She's away for attempted murder. He recovered, works as a welder with hot metal. Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn. I'm glad, I'm glad to get to hear some more of those. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Our next reader is Bill O'Connor. Um, Bill was born in Wyoming, grew up in Colorado, and works as a photographer mostly in the Denver area. His introduction to Lighthouse came in 2011, and he has recently completed Bill Henderson's class, The Heart of the Novel. Uh, the piece he's going to read for us is from The Language of the Labyrinth, The Language of the Labyrinth, which is a novel taking place in the Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah of 1840. Uh, no towns existed except for Taos and Santa Fe in what was then Mexico. The novel's main characters, Avery McDonald and his wife, Madeleine Ney de Sobremonte, hope to uh, repair what was once a strong marriage, and they have reunited at Bent's Old Fort. So please give a warm welcome to Bill O'Connor. Glasses. Madeline held Avery's hand as they walked outside the fort through the wagon gate, something they had done countless times. How different it felt today. Before, they had passed through as a loving couple, husband and wife, father and mother of Abigail, Anyone seeing them now might not notice a change. The razor-edged shards of their marriage, the bleeding wounds, their newly mended bond, so tenuous, all escape notice. They found Myrna outside the fort's walls. She stood smiling under a small cottonwood, and her face lit up as they approached, causing Madeline concern because the future of her fragile marriage depended on Avery being able to tell the young Mojave of their decision. The two stood facing Myrna, and Avery must not have known how to begin because his words came out in a rush, as if he worried he might not get through the, might get them all out. Myrna, Madeline and I have had a long talk about all that has happened and have decided we do not want a second wife in our marriage. He looked on the verge of saying more, 
but hesitated, looked down, and nothing more came. The silence, as both women waited for anything more, froze them as they stood in the simmering heat. Is that all? Madeline wondered. A puff of wind showered them with sandy grit, and Madeline saw Myrna's mouth twitch at the corners. Her eyes blinked rapidly and darted from her to Avery and back again until her face contorted and an anguished sob came from deep inside. The color blanched from Avery's sunburned face and Madeline's heart softened at the sight of a young, abandoned pregnant woman in a strange land, frightened, heartbroken, and forlorn, even if she was pregnant with Avery's child. He took a step toward the baby's mother, and Madeline knew that she risked losing him altogether. Putting her arms around the taller, the taller one, she shooed away her conflicted husband, gently hurting Myrna, now consumed in grief, toward the teepee arranged for Madeline and her child. Pinned where he stood, Avery looked to be crying. She would only have so much time before Owlwoman brought back Aaron to nurse, and Madeline had to know more about Myrna and Avery's story. Her vanquished rival accepted the kindness shown her without reservation, crying herself out as Madeline stroked her arms and assured her as they walked that that she and her child would have a comfortable place to stay and would be cared for. Once inside the prim, simple interior of the Cheyenne teepee, she poured each of them a tumbler of cool yerba buena tea from the earthen jarito she kept by her bed. The teepee's privacy gave Myrna a place to regain her composure. After a few sips and a shuddering breath, Myrna smiled and with disarming sincerity thanked Madeline for her kindness. I have never lived in a teepee until last winter, she said, looking around and wiping away her tears. We Mojave do not have them, but I like how they are so tall inside. The smells common to teepees, tan buffalo hide, smoke and food aromas, reminded Madeline of the year and a half she and Avery lived in a teepee, much like this one. She and Avery never had a teepee liner as nice as the one here, decorated with colored vertical stripes of dyed porcupine quills and colored beads. She missed the dwelling's airy lightness compared to her adobe house in Taos, but wondered if she could go back to this. Could she really give up her table and chairs, the ones Avery had made for her from logs of ponderosa pine? Myrna's face relaxed as she sipped her tea and she surprised Madeline by clasping her hand. Somehow it felt natural, and she felt parts of Myrna's story flow to her and came to understand what happened between her and Avery had marked far more to it than Madeline expected. An image came of Lerna, the murdered younger sister, standing between Avery and Myrna with her arms around them, radiant, loving, happy. Thank you very much, Bill. Next up, we have um, another nonfiction writer, um, Sandra Wilson. Uh, I'm sorry, not Wilson, Sandra Windsor. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Sandra Windsor will read the opening uh, page from her memoir called Opening the Door, which covers her 26 years as the wife of um, an FBI agent during the turbulent and formative years of the 60s and 70s. Um, and she will need these experiences to forge forward after her husband uh, dies in the line of duty. So um, please give a warm welcome to Sandra Windsor. Thank you very much for the introduction. I have to say this has been a remarkable two weeks in my life. And I've, uh, I feel like I'm filled to hear. This is the opening chapter, as it stands now, for my memoir. However, based on my two weeks of experience, it may no longer be the opening <laughs> chapter. And can you read a little loud? Is that better? Okay. I heard them before I saw them. As I rose to peer out my curtained bedroom window, I could see only shadows. Winter was still trying to descend upon the valley. The partially frozen ground below was patchy from previous storms where snow falls, melts, falls again, then begins to collect as a permanent part of the western Colorado landscape. Cloud cover, enhancing the blackness, obscured my vision, even as I wiped my sleeve across the glass to bring the activity into focus. It was not my husband returning from an FBI air surveillance mission. Instead, silhouettes of two men emerged as my eyes adjusted to the darkness, allowing me to recognize a scene that had played in my imagination for 20 years. These two somber men, dressed in dark coats, would close the car doors quietly, so not as to not to disturb the pregnant stillness. They would merge into a dance, in step, as they walked to my doorstep. That walk they had hoped to avoid in their long FBI careers. I backed from the window knowing I would soon hear the knock on my newly painted blue front door. I always painted the front door in a signature color when we moved to a new house. Now it would bear the imprint of a different kind of visitor. As I made my way toward the stairway, the December midnight knock reverberated with a shivering intensity as the visitor's knuckles met the door's casing. That these two men came unannounced was not altogether unexpected. Dressed in sweats quickly pulled on over my night clothes, I crept down the familiar stairs so as not to disturb my two youngest boys who slept after a night in front of the TV. We had expected their dad to be home early evening, but after 20 years, this was a rather familiar scene. Something had come up. Something had happened that he had to cover. He sometimes went as far as to almost guarantee he would be home for a family event, like today. We had planned to all go skiing, and then the phone rang. So waiting was what I did. I didn't like not knowing where he was, or how dangerous the situation. Sometimes he had come home with all body parts intact. Other times he suffered damages. Tonight was different. I breathed deeply as I managed my warm, comforting slippers down the final three treads as if I needed more air to support my standing posture. 
not before Christmas, please, God. Let it be somebody else's house without children. Pass us by one more time, then I won't ask again. I approached my door with a stoic numbness, placed my forehead against the wood, and peered into the peephole where I saw two somber faces, eyes down, waiting for my response. Here they are, I silently confirmed, then denied the possibility. But this doesn't necessarily mean terrible news. Maybe there was an accident, a car accident on the way home from the airport. Maybe... But no, I knew these men in dark suits standing just a door's width from me. One was Frank, close partner. The other must be one of the agents from the Grand Junction office. No longer guessing the nature of their late-night visit, I twisted the deadbolt, its solid click reminding me of the finality of some possibilities. Once opened, I would not be able to close it. Against the blackness. Thank you, Sandra. We're going to do one more um, reading, and then we're going to take a short break so everyone can get stretch and get something else to drink, and uh, then we'll come back. Um, so our last reading in the first half is Drea Nufkin. Um, during her day job, Drea Nufkin ghostwrites for the CEOs of tech companies, but in the wee hours of the literary night, she ghostwrites for the fictional characters in her head. Uh, this is an excerpt from a Western short story called Peacemaker, and yes, she'll be playing a guy. Please welcome Drea Nufkin. I was not expecting to come up so soon. Okay. Sorry, give me a second. Okay. A drunk man launched out of the boarding lane brothel, spewing drivel from his lips, one eye swollen shut from the night before. Stumbled in front of me, tripped face first into a puddle of mud. I grabbed him by the roof when Bob Miller called out to me from the doorway of his general store. His hat, mustache, and paunch all drooping at the same angle half-eaten apple in his hand. Hold up, Preston. Just lost his wife to consumption. Left me for heaven, the stranger muttered with crusted lips. His one good eye quivered to and fro as though someone were shaking him from the inside. I helped him to his feet and never wanted to be a man who lost so much. Hose him off, I told Bob. He needs some dry clothes, and when he wakes up, tell him not to let me see him here again. I offered the man his hat. Love me for heaven. The stranger swung his hat back and forth, as though swatting an invisible fly. Took the man's pistol off him and drained it of ammunition, handed the bullets to Bob, and pocketed the gun. I'm keeping this, I said. Always do, Bob replied. He palmed the ammo and folded his arms across his chest, taking a deep breath the way he always did when he thought he had something important to say. Indians stole hay from my shed last night. Taking care of it now, I said, and tipped my hat. As I turned away, I spotted a yellow bounty poster nailed to the side of Bob's store. 
featured a picture of a bandit in a hat with a bandana tied over his face and cartoonish slanted brows, as though the sketch artist had been a child who was ordered to draw his definition of a mean person. (laughs) Wanted, $500, DOA, ongoing train robberies near Glowfield Town. Poster didn't say how many men there were, or their names, or their heights, or builds. It underlined what everyone knew, which was that these bandits were outsmarting the best and brightest of lawmen, from small-town sheriffs like me to federal agents. Next time Mildred threw me an incredulous glance when I came home empty-handed, I would point her to this poster. But I wanted to tear it to pieces. I'd never met anyone who could outshoot me, but these invisible men were outsmarting me daily. Would Mildred and the citizens of Glowfield recognize that I was not a lawman in the truest sense, their protector, but only someone who happened to have skill with guns? Would they know that even as I released the bullet that would kill a man, I couldn't help but see the interplay of shadow and light, the shade of blood as it blossomed on his chest or out the back of his skull? Every new heist made me aware of my own vulnerability, prodding within me the coiled violence that had led me to becoming sheriff in the first place, but this time it was finding no outlet. Thank you. Last week, uh, right after the intermission, I recited a poem, and it's a poem that I think um, I think speaks to uh, the the struggles and the striving that we um, we tend to uh, all undergo as writers. Uh, it's a it's a short poem. Uh, I, I'm going to admit it's a poem by me, um, and because it's a short poem, it's one that I memorized. So that's why I can actually say it. Uh, without notes um, but it sort of speaks to to a place that we all get to at one point or another as we're you know as we're working with our craft and um, um, you know conquering the that demon that uh, that yes um, so the title of this poem and, and forgive me for those of you who were here last week and you heard this, this damn poem last week but it's a good it's a good icebreaker uh, the title of the poem is um, life goal number 31 Um, Life goal number 31. When I finally Jello Russell Barbara Walters, (laughs) I'll hit her hard. I will not falter. I'll pile drive and somersault her. I'll eat the lunch of Barbara Walters. It kind of speaks to something that we all go through. Um, I wanted to, um, I wanted to, uh, a little errata, a little, uh, you know, mistake from the first half of the readings, um, just goes to show you, you need to prepare for these things. Um, uh, our last reader, uh, Drea Nufkin, does not pronounce her name that way at all. Oh, but that's so easy to mess up. Yeah, but, but, but she pronounces it so much better that I just wanted to tell everyone that, her last name is pronounced Knufkin, which is so much Knufkin. It's not Nufkin, it's Knufkin. That's so much cooler. I kind of wish I'd gotten to say that before. I mean, I'm glad I got a chance to say it now. I'm going to be saying that while I drive home, just that name. Because um, it's fun. It's a good name. Um, thank you, folks, for coming back. We're, we've got uh, six more readers for you, um, and we're going to open up with um, uh, Allison Barker, who... Um, um, who was concerned that maybe her um, her bio was a little uh, 
not as not as interesting or maybe not as appropriate as some of the other bios of the people who have read for you tonight. And I just want to say, for the record, I think it's a great bio. You know, <laughs> that's just me. I've just met Allison tonight, but I think she's got a terrific bio. <laughs> Allison Barker is glad she lives in Denver. Amen. I'm glad you live in Denver, too. And I think there's probably another, a lot of other people in the room who feel that way. I'm glad I live in Denver. Um, except for I live in Littleton. Um, but <laughs> Splitting hairs. Close enough. Alison Barker is glad she lives in Denver. She, most, uh, she is most recently from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I believe that's French for red stick, isn't it? Um, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where she attended LSU for her MFA in fiction writing. Her work has appeared in Friction Review, Columbia Journal of Art and Literature, Monkey Bicycle, I want, I want in there, Monkey Bicycle, Front Porch, Dislocate, among others. She also writes book reviews for Book Slut, Philadelphia Inquirer, Paste, and Chicago Reader. She runs a collaborative blog about food, writing, and life at nolastudiola.com. Um, please give a warm Denver welcome to Allison Barker. Thank you. Um, Nola Studiola is looking for curators, meaning I want different people, and they have done this before. It's not a brand new experiment, so it won't be a disaster, I promise. Um, different people run the blog each month, so starting this fall, I'm looking for people to do that. So one person from the Lighthouse so far has contacted me. I will get back to him, um, and it's a lot of fun, so come by. Um, this summer, I'm writing it, and this is the first post. My roommate's studying for the MCAT. And that's where the printer is in the room, so I don't go in there. It's, like, very serious in there, so I'm reading from my iPhone. <laughs> okay. Uh, post number one, dispatches from a whimsical life. Once in the summer of 2006 in Shaftesbury, Vermont, I sat on Robert Frost's toilet. I'm not making this up. I stepped over the velvet rope, sat right down, and smiled for my friend to take a picture. And all of a sudden, I felt less scared. What's so scary about Robert Frost? A lot of things. That poem, Two Roads That Converged, Taking the Road Less Traveled, he makes it sound so final, so permanent, like there is just one fork in the road, one turning point in your life story. Just remembering the lines give me the chills. I hate forks in the road. I hate having to choose to stay put. I just like looking, changing direction on a whim. I'm like a shark. I need constant movement to survive. Over the past 13 years, I've lived in six states, 13 residences, nine cities. I'm a veteran sightseer, a moving target, just passing through. Back in 06, I was trying to be a serious fiction writer, and I was ashamed of all my moving around. I thought that in order to be a serious fiction writer, you had to be grounded, decisive. You couldn't get distracted by new places and faces like I do. But the moment I sat on Mr. Frost's throne, everything changed for me. A stillness took over. It was a very small thing. I didn't hear his voice. It was a shift in perspective. On his toilet, I stopped being a spectator. <laughs> and I became a part of the main attraction. I saw what Robert Frost saw when he cracked. I liked it. 
I felt powerful and in charge. He saw a window which looked out over some trees. He saw wood paneling. And if the door was open, he saw his china cabinet. At Robert Frost's house, I learned that creepy poem of his was just one of the things that he produced, maybe while sitting on the toilet. Hell, maybe he didn't even believe the drama of the fork. To be a writer, not a serious fiction writer, but a plain old writer, I have learned that you need to be yourself. Because though they are different, the writer and self, they need to be on speaking terms. I delighted in the durability of his throne that day, and I delighted in yet another new vista. How many other people had sat here, I wondered. No two ways about it, I thought proudly, part of my wandering life was spent on Robert Frost's toilet. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm there. That was evocative. Our, uh, our next reader tonight is Greg uh, Jalbert. Um, Greg grew up listening to tales of the wild around bonfires at his family's fishing and hunting lodge in Maine's North Woods. Um, he fine-tuned his storytelling talent by earning an MFA from the University of Arizona, and his novel, Shadow Walkers, is set on a fictional main lake. Uh, the central character struggles to sort through myth, wonder, and deceit after the collapse of the wilderness and the loss of family traditions. Please give a warm welcome to a fine writer, Mr. Craig Chalbert. Thanks a lot, J.D. That was great. Uh, so, as you So much for the witness protection program. <laughs> so as most of you know, uh, growing up is kind of a, like a car wreck where you one day wake up and say, you know, what the hell happened? So my main character is at that point in his life, he's about 35 years old. He's looking back on his life in this uh, wild area and trying to figure and separate uh, myth from reality. So the story he's focusing on right now is his birth. And the way he was born, his father said that he was delivered down from the sky world by the great bear. And what his father was doing was hiding the fact that his mother died in childbirth on the dining room table, giving birth to him at the lodge. And then, um, so the father took the mother and uh, his son out in two dog sleds. They went 30 miles north to the town. And so this story is about what the father is going to do to reprieve himself. It has to do with dogs. My father cradled the shotgun in his arm as he stared at the river. Fog steamed up from black water refusing to freeze. White smoke plumes rose straight out of the chimneys of the houses on the Canadian shore. The sub-zero temperature crystallized moisture in the air. It fell lazily as snow, and the bells of the church in San André started tolling the morning angelus. The dogs barked at the somber knell. They howled mournfully as wolves, and their breath steamed from open mouths tipped to the sky. In an hour, the bells of the Church of the Transfiguration would toll the Angelus on the, Canadian, on the American side of the river. The dogs would wail. They would wail again at the tolling of the noon Angelus. 
at the tolling of the evening Angelus, at the tolling of the Angelus on the Canadian side of the river, at the tolling of the Angelus on the American side of the river. The bells would toll the Angelus six times a day, and the dogs would never stop marking the loss of Isabella McLagan St. Pierre. My father whistled the dogs. Without raising his voice, he called them to come and slapped his thigh as further encouragement. Cradling the shotgun, he walked around the truck and down the driveway towards the barn. The dogs pranced beside him as they nipped and played. They must have believed Pierre St. Pierre would water and feed them in the barn. He would lay down fresh straw, and they would sleep huddled against the cold. Madeline stepped out onto the porch. She folded her arms around her waist, since she wore no more than a red and black long-sleeved dress her sister had sent from Montreal. Monsieur St. Pierre, she called. Isabella would want you to stop. He turned and looked up at her, but Isabella could not make, but Madeline could not make out the expression since the ear flaps of beaver hat framed and partially hid his face. Arrêtez-vous, s'il vous plaît, Monsieur St. Pierre. The dogs were warmth and love. Their tails were made of joy. Some stood on hind legs, poised like dancers. Pink, pink tongues, wet with kindness, hung from their mouths as my father stepped up to the barn door and attempted to slide it open. The door was frozen shut, and for a moment, Madeline was relieved. He leaned against the door and shouldered into it. The iron wheels were frozen as if part of a confederacy opposed to slaughter. My father set the butt of the shotgun in the snow and leaned the barrel against the barn. Bracing two hands against the edge of the door, he shoved it, shoved it again and again. The frozen wheels squealed sharply as they slid along the top rail. The barking and yelping dogs reminded Madeline of winter nights when my parents and sister gathered around the dinner table to play cards with her. They laughed. The temperature fell to 30 and 40 degrees below zero. The wind blew and a shutter banged the siding. Hearing their master, the dogs and the pens barked relentlessly for Pierre to allow them into the house. He finally put on a parka and went outside. The dogs whined with delight. They stretched and bowed to him as he opened the gate. When it was time for bed, 20 sled dogs divided among the bedrooms. The four pack leaders, Buck, Storm, Winter, and Moses, curled up on Isabella and Pierre's bed. Five slept on Madeline's double bed. Three slept on Lily's twin bed. Others slept on beds in the guest rooms, and the guests were required to shape their bodies around the sleeping dogs. The rest of the dogs, three or four too young or too small to put up a fight with the others, slept in a pile on the floor below my father. He scratched their heads and allowed them to lick his hand for comfort until they settled. Madeline fell asleep. Lily fell asleep. The guests fell asleep. Isabella fell asleep, and my father listened to the dogs softly whimpering as they dreamed and slept like newly tamed wolves in the winter hovels of their masters before we forgot how to sleep in the wild. That morning in the driveway of my grandparents' house, as the dogs filed into the barn, Buck carried the leg bone of a deer my grandfather had flung into the snow. Buck, Buck nudged the bone into Pierre's hand as if it was a gift. He slapped away the dog and picked up the shotgun, cradled it. The dogs trusted him. They trusted the man dressed in a bear coat and beaver hat who had stood on the runners of the sled and had driven them downriver through the dark hours uh, earlier the dark hours earlier. 
trotting fast, sometimes running. The dog smelled open water and veered the sled away from it. They scented Isabella's death and lunged at their harnesses to outrun it. The dogs knew which way to turn when their master hollered, gee and ha. They knew nothing about betrayal. They only knew how to, how to please, how to bow their heads as they trotted past my father into the barn that morning. Each knew their order in the pack as they allowed the lead dogs to enter first. Inside the barn, their stomachs grumbled and churned with hunger, but they knew how to sit and wait in silence. Pierre St. Pierre stepped inside. He looked up at Madeline on the porch just before he slid the barn door closed. Thank you, Craig. Um, up next, um, we have Katie Peterson. Uh, Katie Peterson is going to read uh, from her second attempt at a YA fantasy novel. It's set in an imagined ancient North America populated by a mix of Vikings and Native nations. Katie is a mother of four, has worked as a Ringling Brothers clown, played guitar to a wild grizzly in Alaska, and toured with her own show uh, to Japan. (laughs) She currently uh, leads individualized fieldwork adventures for gifted uh, K-8 students, and for dessert gets to teach Latin and mathematics, which that's pretty cool. Please give a warm welcome to Katie Peterson. I haven't gotten anything published yet, so I never know what to put in my bio. <laughs> okay, so this one's my attempt at being spooky. We'll see how it goes. Can you hear me? Okay. A nor'easter wrapped its rage around the hearth set in, shaking the shutters and rattling the doors. Inside, a half dozen guests sat on rough benches pulled close around the hearth. A small cauldron hung over the flames on a hook. Next to it sat Solveig, the young innkeeper, dipping with a ladle. Guests handed empty tankards to Yalk, her teenage nephew, who delivered them back full of hot, spiced ale. Sonore sat in the center, an old salt, mid-yarn. He was out of his mind with jealousy after that, he said, and took a long draw on his pint. He caught his wife the next day, making love with the water sprite and shot them with an arrow. Went right through the sprite. The creature shattered into a thousand glittering droplets and fell back into the lake. But the wife, well, the arrow pierced her through, right to her heart. Then he skinned her. Snorri paused again. He held his tankard in both hands, elbows on his knees, and dropped his voice to a whisper. I shouldn't like to repeat it. It was so horrible what he did after. His lip trembled. He handed his empty tankard to Yalk, wiped his face with both hands, and took a deep breath to steady himself. Those poor babes, those poor, poor children, they knew no better, knew nothing but that their mother had wandered off again. He said he'd killed an antelope. Then in the night... He just walked off and left them there, alone in the middle of the empty prairie, all alone, 
left them there with the meat hanging in strips over a smoking fire. One guest, a one-armed man in weathered, worn buckskin, sputtered and gagged on his drink. Goody Vilma, a wizened widow, spit tobacco juice into the fire from the large lump of chew lodged in her cheek. What happened to them? To the children? asked Yalk, as he handed the refilled tankard back to Sonore. No one knows. He took a drink and smacked his lips. Some say the spirit of their dead mother pursues them still, that even to this day you can hear the shrieks of those poor children in the wind of a stormy night, fleeing across the plains, through the forests, forever running before their mother's fury. The wind rose to a deafening roar. The front door of the tavern slammed open. Sulvig jumped. Goody Vilma shrieked and fell off her stool. A dark hooded figure in a dripping oilskin leaned against the door jamb. He held, in his, he held a young woman in his arms. She was unconscious, drenched to the skin, and heavy with child. Sulvig ran across the room and helped the hooded man carry her over to the hearth. Yalk and the one-armed guest struggled to close the door and bar it against the howling storm. Ingert, Solvig said to a young girl, who stood by the fire, staring wide-eyed. Go fetch blankets. Ingert scampered off. And a pillow too, child, Solvig called after her. Give us room, make room, please, Solvig said, as the guests crowded around to see the victim. Yalk, she nodded towards the cauldron over the hearth, a nightcap for all these good men, and please help Goody. Yalk got Goody Vilma up upright, then topped off the tankards and mugs. Vilma's first. The guests shuffled off to their rooms and beds. Ingrid returned with the bedding and worked with Solvig to make the girl comfortable by the fire. Only Sonora lingered, standing by the cauldron, chugging down the last of his pint. <laughs> he said, looking at the girl. Won't make it through the night, I reckon. The hooded man took a seat on a bench near the hearth and threw back his cloak to reveal a dark, deeply lined face. He wore a patch over one eye, but the other glittered like a chip of blue ice, peering through damp, a damp mat of black and silver curls. The man's name was Hraffen. Yalk handed him a pint and went to finish wiping down the bar. What happened to the eye then, said Snorri, pointing at Hraffen with the handle of the ladle. Raven pecked it out as I hung from a yard arm, Hraffen replied. He fixed Snorri with a piercing gaze and curled his lip in a sneer. Had to wring the bloody creature's neck. Hmph, <laughs> Snorri grunted. He topped off his pint from the cauldron for the third time. Well, I'm off to bed, he said, seeing as all decent company has gone. You see what I mean, though? The stories, they just keep getting better and better. That's great. Thank you, Katie. Um, up next, we have Kimberly May. Uh, Kimberly has uh, been taking light classes at Lighthouse for a year. She writes um, nonfiction uh, personal narratives and essays, and she's been working as a veterinarian for 10 years. She also has the shortest bio of the night. 
please give a warm welcome to Kimberly May. Okay, so this is a personal essay called Bite Me. (laughs) Fear of being bitten has no place in a veterinary clinic. And yet, there it is. It's there, of course, because you've been bitten before. That time with the poodle who was hit by a train but must have survived somehow by being thrown clear by the impact. The small white toy poodle who looked so sweet and sad. And you were only 20 and it was your first job in a veterinary clinic, cleaning cages mostly. And he reminded you of your first poodle, Coco, that you got finally after much begging when you were five years old. And the white poodle looked so cute, and you were so moved by his story, and you felt so bad for him that you were compelled to console him, to give him a little pet. But the poodle did not want to be pet. (laughs) He was hurting, and he wanted to be left alone. And his body language conveyed this under no uncertain terms, but you did not understand the terms. So you opened his cage and reached for the top of his head with your hand. But you're experienced now, and you know better. And this reassures you until you recall how your boss, who's been practicing for 40 years, was recently bit in the face by that schnauzer who remained attached to your boss's cheek until someone pried his jaws free. And that reminds you of the near misses. The Shiba Inu who snapped when you were a technician, lowering him off the stainless steel table. He missed in part because of a little toss you gave at the end (laughs) when things weren't going so well. And his well-meaning owner apologized and insisted that the dog apologize which amounted to the owner commanding you to stick out your hand so the dog could apologize. Which, with all due respect, sounded like a very bad plan to you. It seemed to you like giving the dog a second chance to complete his failed mission. And so you could not bring yourself to extend your paw. But the owner would not let it go and pressed on relentlessly until the veterinarian finally, mercifully, intervened on your behalf, proposing that perhaps you could intuit and accept the dog's apology from a respectable distance. Years later, there would be that black lab who whispered sweet nothings to you in the form of a low guttural growl punctuated by barks that pierced your eardrums from across the exam room where you work as a veterinarian. Smartly, you kept your distance, but he lunged from five feet away with such ferocity it inspired your technician, the one who was supposed to be helping you, to jump behind you. (laughs) 
using you in the manner of a human shield. (laughs) And of course, there are the ones who give no warning. Like the time when you'd been out of vet school merely a year and were tasked with examining a 90-pound yellow lab who was wagging his tail and inviting you closer until you crouched to his level for your exam and he went for your face. You rocked back in your dance goes in record time, but you feel like you were handed a temporary get-out-of-jail-free card and it will be revoked sometime in the future and you don't know when, but you know that it's coming. And let's not forget your favorite scenario, the one that occurs so frequently it it defies statistical probability. It's when you've completed your exam, have stuck your fingers in the dog's mouth, and had your face near his face, because why can't they make a stethoscope that's three feet long? You have lifted the dog's tail, which, surprisingly for this butt-sniffing species, constitutes a bite-worthy violation of the canine code of conduct. And at the end of it all, the owners say, Gosh, Fluffy must really like you. He normally bites the vet. (laughs) And you thank them for sharing this information. There's no comparing, um, like side by side, the different readings of the night um, because they're all high quality. But I, I do like to notice trends, and so like like that the last three readings all had dogs and and the eating of human flesh. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure that Greg's did, but you know, but you just the way these themes move through is very. Um, up next, we have our second poet of the evening. Um, uh, Brad Kotke. Uh, Brad is a uh, native of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I've been to Milwaukee. It is a good town. I like Milwaukee. And has been on, uh, an active member of Lighthouse for a little over a year. Um, this is his second Lit Fest. Uh, I, I was in a class with him last year at Lit Fest. And he has been having a blast in the Advanced Poetry Intensive with Thomas Lux. Um, he will be reading uh, two short poems for us tonight. And Please give a warm welcome to Brad Kotke. <clears throat> Felt like that bio was a little sparse, too, so I just want to add that I am glad I'm from Denver, too. <laughs> or, or live in Denver, rather. Um, I am going to read two short poems. Uh, the first one might be considered slightly R-rated. So if any of you are 17 and unaccompanied by a parent or guardian, you should probably leave right now. Okay, we're all good. Right on. (laughs) It's called Becky Shows You How to Finger Bang the Jukebox. When the bartender's notion of appropriate volume and yours do not agree, she gets up against the red wall at the back of the bar, shoulder and length of arm along the jukebox's side, wrist cocked, bird up, pinky out, a deft reach under, right there. See by touch, feel for the button. 
her forearm telltale pulses. And sure enough, you get what you need in the form of her smile as one slender finger jacks up the stones. Uh, the second one, uh, not quite so cheeky. Um, uh, it's entitled After Again. And I wrote this last summer um, after some of the really horrific fires we had here in Colorado. Um, this year seems to be shaping up no different. And I'd just like to acknowledge the people that have suffered in the fires. And uh, pray for rain, folks. Pray for rain. After Again. In shower after shower after shower, after the heat finally broke, after fires burnt the hills, after smoke washed down, the once arid air has gone to a tangle of curls in your hair. Puddled gutter in front of St. Dominic's, the parking lane where hearses and wedding limos pause is empty today save a pool of dirty rainwater after hot drought, visited by the sky again and again and again, in spattering circles that intersect and blend and disperse. You find some measure of peace in this, some smooth congruity of the frames, as when a lens pulls into focus, as though you inhabit your skin again and you grin again for the first time in a long time. Thank you. I want to hear more. Uh, Last reader of the night. Coming up, our last reader of the night is uh, the indomitable Cat Kurtz. Um, indomitable? Is that inimitable? Inimitable? The unimitatable Cat Kurtz. Cat Kurtz is a vegetable-eaten, kombucha-drinking, knowledge-seeking, outdoor-loving mom, wife, writer reader, teacher, speaker, yogini, storyteller, gardener, trail runner, sometimes chef, who lives in Boulder, Colorado, with Lighthouse's magnificent Doug Kurtz, and their soon-to-be four-year-old son, Max. Please give a warm welcome to our last reader of the night, Kat Kurtz. Hi. Um, so first I just want to say it's just been such a pleasure and an honor to be at Lighthouse. I've never taken a workshop here before. And um, I was with Greg Jalbert in Andre Dubuse's workshop last week. And it was just a really um, inspiring experience. And um, after the workshop, Andre met with me. I've been working on a book, a nonfiction book, for the last 11 years about Buddhist nuns in Thailand fighting an underground revolution for the right to ordain like the monks. So I met with Andre, and he told me that my book was like a two-headed cat, 
that I was a good writer, but that the Thailand book was very different than the book about um, my childhood self, and that I needed to write my memoir about me before I could write the book about Thailand. <clears throat> so, um, my parents used to call me Kathy, and he constantly said, bring out Kathy, bring out Kathy. We want to hear from Kathy. Nobody cares about Thailand. Bring out Kathy. So here she is. Um, I wrote this short this week, um, and I'm calling it Fat Pants. <clears throat> Can you hear me? Okay. The year I turned 12, my mother nicknamed me Fat Pants. I was four feet and three-quarter inches tall and 102 pounds. I wore a bob, shaved in steps up the back, and a, Viv- and a Vivian Lang sweep of hair that fell over one eye, prompting my grandmother to constantly ask how I could see like that. I wore a full set of gunmetal braces and a full face of acne. When I ran my fingers over my skin, I could not go half an inch before finding another pimple. I did not feel pretty at 12, even before my name was Fat Pants. My mother used the nickname affectionately, but I was scared of my mom, and I didn't want a term of endearment. I wanted to fly below my mother's radar, to stop making messes, losing my way, misplacing my belongings, and I knew that these habits were somehow part of me, that there was no way to try harder or learn better. My mother's anger was linked to the fact that I was there, and so I strove to disappear. But while I was 12, I stayed fat pants. In September, with the start of the school year, my mother put me on my first diet. I had five wheat thins with peanut butter each morning for breakfast, no more chips or sweets with lunch, no snacks, and no dessert. This change was particularly hard because of all the junk food we kept in the yellow cabinet. The yellow cabinet was long and thin, reaching from the floor to the ceiling of our canary kitchen. There are children I am certain only befriended me to gain access. It was stocked from top to bottom with the kind of crap most kids only longed for. Ruffles potato chips, Hostess ding-dongs, Nestle Quick, Twinkies, Oreos, club crackers that came with orange cheese and a plastic red stick, Funyuns, Fritos, chocolate snowballs coated in hot pink coconut with a creamy surprise in the center. Despite my new nickname and my new diet, the yellow cabinet remained fully stocked. There was still my sister to feed after all. I remember coming home from school and watching my mother sit at the kitchen table in a lacy bra and unzipped shorts, flipping through the newspaper while consuming a king-sized Hershey bar with almonds. She ate it with her mouth open, and I could hear the almonds crunching in her teeth while I stood transfixed, saliva pooling in my bottom lip until my mother pushed back from the table and slid the door closed. Mommy needs some space, she'd say. My father and my sister didn't like hearing me called fat pants. Oh, my God, my mom would shout, rolling her eyes. You are all so sensitive. Where did you learn to be so goddamn sensitive? My mother had little tolerance for delicate constitutions. Her children would not complain. They would not need special consideration. They would eat everything on their plates. I remember a short phase when I liked using a teaspoon at dinner. Oh, what's wrong, she'd croon. Is your mouth too teeny-weeny to eat with a soup spoon like the rest of us? Kathy's got such a delicate mouth. Kathy's too delicate for normal silverware. I was delicate. I skulked around like a stray cat, defensive and always searching for signs of kindness. Each day, I'd unfold my napkin at lunch and look for her ballpoint note scrawled across it. 
I Love You, and A Doodled Flower. And even though I had asked her to write these, out of envy for the other kids who got them, I still felt hopeful when they appeared in my brown paper sack. And maybe it was this hope for some kind of sitcom family with kids that make mistakes and parents that love them anyway, which fueled my decision to steal the Doritos. (laughs) Whatever the reason, I took them. Just before my carpool driver pulled into the driveway at 6.20, I reached into that yellow cabinet, lying to myself as I did it, pretending I just wanted some planter's peanuts, turning my head from my groping hand, whispering, damn it, as I landed on the chips, feigning disappointment that I had somehow mistaken a bag of chips for a tube of peanuts, glancing at my watch and mumbling, I'm going to be late, then shoving them into my backpack. I could not bring myself to eat them in my lunch circle to flagrantly disobey my mother and shove a big, fat Dorito in my big, fat face. But I could not throw them out either. I was in English class when I found my hand fishing in my backpack, seemingly of its own accord. I snuck out the contraband, and while the teacher was talking, ripped it open. After that, I eased into my subversive act, taking only the tiniest bites, mushing the chips against my tongue to keep myself from crunching. I kept thinking of the time I peed my pants in the first grade when the teacher never saw my raised hand of how silly I'd been to think that if I let out just a little bit at a time, it wouldn't make a puddle. And then I choked. A Dorito the size of a guitar pick lodged in my throat and wouldn't give way. I stifled a cough which seemed to aggravate the chip further and suddenly I was wheezing and hacking and flapping my hands. The teacher looked up from her desk, her forehead bunching between the eyes. Kathy Altman, are you choking, she asked. Her tone accusatory in its concern. Kathy, were you eating in class, she demanded. Were you eating in class? My back ached as I pressed myself into my plastic orange chair in an attempt to somehow merge with it and vanish, but she was coming at me, this choking, crying, hyper-visible scene I had become. Were you eating in class? And I had to nod yes, had to admit guilt, because I really could not breathe. When I got home, now fat pants who choked while horking a Dorito, I thought about how to tell my family before they heard from someone else. I went for funny. No one else would call me an idiot if I did it first. I imitated myself nibbling in secrecy, my angry looming teacher, the nurse. And my mom said, you know, Kath, the older you get... The more I like you. I went to my room and indulged in my recurring fantasy where I wake up 40 years old and black, my family standing around my bed like the one in Wizard of Oz. Oh, look, they'd say, she's awake. Honey, you've been sleeping for the longest time. I tell my imaginary family my Dorito story, and they laugh and laugh, just like my real family had only moments ago. But this feels different, and I know someday it will stay that way. Me just the same, with the world feeling different. Thanks. Let's, let's, let's just, for, for all the readers tonight, thanks. That was really great. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, 
Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.